Chris. Hey, hey. How are you? I'm in, con- I'm in constant fear when we record because uh, my cable line for my internet is literally like just run down the street in front of my house. <laughs> Does it cross over the street? <laughs> no. Luckily, but like there's two – I don't know anything about utilities. That should be like – if there's anything you should know about me, I know nothing about that. So if we hear a lawnmower and then you just disappear, uh, we know what happened. <laughs> Pretty much. So there's like uh, – there's a box. To, so like if you're looking at my house to the front of it, to the left, there's like a little box that I imagine it's like for underground utilities. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you look to the right, there's another one. But neither one of them are in my house. But all I know is that one day Comcast went down. Uh, there was a Comcast truck outside. And then for the past two months, there's been this thick black wire that runs from box A to box B and it's right in front of my house. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that's my Comcast connection. That's and then I can just go outside and cut it. Like, Wow. That's pretty funny. I've been, uh, I've been watching AT&T, AT&T like make holes in the sidewalk next to my house um and there's this big new like apartment building going in there so i'm pretty sure they paid for like at&t to run fiber out to my house or out past my house um but every time i plug in my address online it doesn't show that i can get fiber internet and i have the same problem and i'm like man like who can i talk to like do i just what if i just run the cable myself like uh (laughs) you know that'd be fine right so, yeah, I'm like, I just want to pay for fiber. Please take my money. That's it. Comcast will give us fiber, but, like, I can't just – like, AT&T is, like, pretty affordable fiber. Yeah, it's, uh, like, it's like 90 bucks a month or something for one gig up, one gig down. I believe. Yeah, that's, re- that's reasonable. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty solid. Because um, right now I pay, like, the same price for uh, 500 down and, like, 20 up on uh, charter spectrum which is like eh, not great not when i'm uploading videos yeah i so comcast actually does me pretty fair uh they like like since i've been a comcast member they've bumped up our speed like 150 meg uh so we get like 2250 and 300 down that's not bad no it's, it's pretty good but uh we and we only pay like 60 bucks a month but every, like, we do that on yearly contract at the end of the year. It always goes up, like, 40 bucks. I'm like, all right, Shannon, time to call Comcast. Yeah, and pretend to cancel. Yeah. <laughs> every time she calls, we get our old rate back, so. Yeah, it's really funny how they do that. I mean, it's really crappy, too, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I will say, like, Comcast has gotten a little better. It's still, like, I don't know. Do, do people even have Comcast outside of the United States? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, Probably, I would guess not. But I would maybe. guess not. So, only a subsection of people listening understand our woes. Uh, so today we have a guest with us. Uh, Jesus, do you mind introducing yourself real quick? Yes. Um. Hello. My name is Jesus Castillo. I'm a Ruby developer from Spain, and I teach Ruby through my website, which is rubyguides.com. 
and I have been doing this for a few years, and I have a lot of articles in there that can help you learn Ruby from beginners, intermediate, advanced. I have something for everyone. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Um, so when you say you teach Ruby, do you teach any like Rails content or mostly just Ruby content? I focus mostly on Ruby, like 95% Ruby. I want to do a little more Rails because people have been asking me, can you teach some more Rails, uh, more things like that? And I will try to introduce a bit more Rails uh, content, but my main focus is Ruby because I really like Ruby as a language more than focusing on the frameworks. That's fair. Uh, except we have somebody with us whose entire business is <laughs> Rails Screencast. Yeah. Uh, well, so, I mean, it's, well, it's all Ruby underneath. That's mm -hmm. it, you know? Exactly. Except for your, except for your stimulus videos. Well, yeah. In your view it's all, videos. It's all, it's all JavaScript underneath the Ruby, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how long, Jesus, have you been teaching Ruby? Uh, for about uh, three years now. How long have you been doing Ruby in general? Uh, about seven years. Okay. Would you would you get started with um, programming originally, and then what led you into Ruby? Yes, I started. Um, well, many years ago, like when I was about um, nine, ten years old, and fifty three now, free free. <laughs> so uh, that's a lot of years. As uh, I had a computer, uh, which was a very old computer, an uh, Amstrad 486. Amstrad uh, 486. You can Google that if you want to see what that looks like. And uh, it came with a manual, with a programming manual, right? <laughs> so when you buy a computer today, it doesn't come with any kind of manual, maybe some manual for the motherboard um, or the, something, some hardware but it doesn't come with a programming manual, right? But by, um, by then, it came with a programming manual. Uh, I think the programming language is what is called basic, just basic. Or at least it's what it says in the, in the cover of the manual. It was a fake manual. And then I got started with that. I just read it, and it had pages and pages and pages of code examples. And I just copy and paste, basically, the code I didn't fully understand what was going on, but I find it very fascinating and very interesting and exciting that as I type this code into the computer, things start to happen and I can control what happens, right? And that really made me, got me hooked into this whole programming thing. And then later on, so I... I got a better computer, an actual Intel computer with Windows, because that's what I knew what was available to me right, right then. Um, the next programming language that I learned was Perl. In, in fact, I still have the Perl book that I bought by then many, many years ago. After that, then I learned some Java, some C, 
um, pretty much a bit of everything, and PHP. So uh, all of the popular languages, I, I learn a bit about them, even a bit of assembly language. So, and that's very interesting. And yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I had, uh, when you mentioned Perl, I, when I graduated college, I, um, I had done a little Rails and Ruby, mm-hmm. and then I got a job doing Perl. And uh, Perl was definitely an interesting influence in, in the design of Ruby. It felt like going back in time using Perl after learning Ruby, but it's a, I can see that being a good transition to go from, from Perl to Ruby. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was when I discovered Ruby. I just read about Discover Ruby thing on the internet, and I thought it was very interesting. So I started learning, and then I really got got into Ruby, and I decided that I would make that my main programming language, and it has been kept like that since then. I really, I really like Ruby because the syntax it can be very elegant. We have things like enumerables, enumerators, and blocks. All of these nice things. I also like it's um, very object oriented. So all of these things I think make and um, Ruby gems. All of that make Ruby a very nice, a well-rounded uh, programming language. How did you get into teaching? Right. So what, what happened is that uh, I did some freelancing, and then I got t- tired of that. And dealing with clients, all of that can be very tiring, right? So I I thought, what else can I do that I still work with Ruby? So I look into the teaching. I started teaching. I like teaching. What I really enjoy when I see other people learning and they have these aha moments when you're as they're learning and you're teaching them and guiding them, right? I really enjoy that. So I thought, well, this guy, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start teaching. I'm going to learn about teaching and writing articles. And I did that. I learned how to properly write some good articles, uh, how to do research for these articles and all of that, all of the skills that are required. And then I thought, well, I need to make a business out of this so I can actually do this uh, all the time, right? So that's what I did. Uh, my blog, I I publish free content, but I offer a subscription to my newsletter. And when you subscribe to the newsletter, then occasionally I send you offers to buy my books or, my, or any courses that I release in the future or one-on-one training with me and things like that. That's cool. So you actually like offer people uh, one-on-one training. Do you have a lot of people take you up on that? Mm, not right now because uh, I don't offer very actively. Um, sure. But I had uh, a student for a few months and he keep going for a few months and we meet almost daily. So that was really fun. And what I would like to do is to do, I'm not sure how to structure this. I would like to do like group sessions. 
think group sessions, group teaching sessions. So like seven or eight students in like a Google Hangouts or something like that live and one um, mentor, teacher, um, and then guide them through some problems. But I'm still working out how exactly I want to do that, how to, how to make sure that the people um, can meet at the same time because since I have people, I have readers, and my audience is all over the world. It's mostly the biggest percentages is from USA, but I have also people from Spain, people from Brazil, from India, even from China, from all of the world. I know this because Google Analytics and because, of course, I speak with people that read my blog through email. People email me and I speak with them about Ruby and things like that. Um, yeah. So, Chris, while we're on the subject, uh, I don't know on this podcast that we've ever talked, like, how did you get started programming and subsequently teaching? Yeah, that's a good question. Um I originally started when it was like seventh grade and my dad was taking uh, or cleaning off a bookshelf and he found his old um, Atari basic programming book. And uh, he gave that to me and we didn't have an Atari. I think his mom, my grandma had, you know, gotten rid of it or something. And so we didn't have that, but we had this old DOS computer um, that had GW basic on it. And it was similar enough to the Atari Basic that I was able to, you know, learn um, and just copy what they were doing in the book and reproduce it, write my own line numbers and everything. It was, it was quite different. Um, and over time, I just kind of went and figured out, like, okay, there's this Q Basic thing, which is basic, but you don't have to write your own line numbers, and it has all these other features and stuff. And and eventually got into doing Visual Basic and C++ and things. And then um, uh, sometime in school, in high school, I got my own computer finally. So I wanted to install Linux on it and we had dial-up. And uh, so I decided, you know, to basically like read through all these tutorials online and try and get Linux set up on there and all the features working because like, you know, Wi-Fi back then didn't work out of the box so um, I was reading all these tutorials, and so I started to kind of aggregate people's forum threads when I'd find solutions for how to make, like, this feature work or whatever, and just, like, wrote a guide for that laptop that I had um, just to organize it, and I was really active in that forum community, and other people were writing guides, so that's kind of how I ended up getting into doing similar things, and... Uh, just would turn those into blog posts and, and things like that. Yeah, I want, since you mentioned about Linux, I want to mention a little story about that because I was learning and um, getting my first uh, computer. I mentioned I came with Windows. It was like Windows 95. Then uh, I learned also about Linux. And the way I, I, find I got my first Linux distribution was by buying a magazine, um, one of these magazines. And I'm sure if I pronounce the word correctly, the you know what I mean, the magazines, the 
these things you buy at the kiosk and they they came mm. with a CD. Yeah, with, right. Like those, uh, with those Linux. old magazines. Yeah, yeah, magazines. And it was like Red Hat 6.0. <laughs> I was all excited about installing that. And I found out that there wasn't a, a trash, um, like the, the trash bin that you have on the desktop on Windows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember that you didn't have that. So I, create, I tried to create it after installing Red Hat. I create like a folder. I name it like um, like trash, and I try to create my own. I try to make it more more into Windows because that's what I was used into. Yeah, that's a it's a hard transition to wrap your head around the difference, especially when all you've really known is Windows. To go to to Linux, it's it's quite a different thing. Yeah, see, when I first even thought about using Linux, I was already a Mac user. So mm. like, That's good, because then you're already kind of somewhat familiar with it since it's uh, based off similar things. Yeah, but then, like, kind of like Jesus was saying, like, I, I would want to try and make it Mac, which mm -hmm. is just not a thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, you end up going down the rabbit hole of customizing Linux, which takes years, and you're always fiddling with things. I feel like <laughs> my entire life is going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I feel like at least on OS 10, um, I'm actually productive. Whereas on, on Linux, I was always like fiddling with making my desktop a cube with snow and other weird like <laughs> animations and stuff I didn't need. <laughs> That's like, uh, it was like when we first started the podcast, I talked about how I was like going to try windows out for a week with like Ruby development. Oh yeah. 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 And then like, I kept trying to like tweak it to like how I've used a Mac for so long. And I had been doing it for like four hours and not written any code. <laughs> Yeah, I remember I installed Windows to um, to do the Windows 10 Rails guide uh, on how to install it. And I remember just installing it and then rebooting and waiting for 30 minutes for updates to install. And I was like, this hasn't changed much since I last used Windows. It's still just always updates all the time. <laughs> so uh, Jesus, mm -hmm. what's some of like favorite content to write like what do you really enjoy writing any like specific things or just all things ruby well that's a good question uh, i enjoy all kinds of content but some of my favorite is probably where i'm learning myself something new and i have to research about it uh, so i can find out how it works and uh, when i have to actually write to prove if this works this way or that way. So I really enjoy what while I'm writing, I'm discovering something new about Ruby. That's really uh, interesting and fun. I also like writing the when we have a new Ruby feature, reading about the new features and testing them out and just writing what's and creating the examples so people can also test these new Ruby features. So are you just going through like Ruby change logs and like figuring out what's new and writing about it? Or how do you discover what's new between each version? 
Yes, so there is the the release um, page that gets announced on rubylang.org. And there is some news, but I, there is a lot of things missing. So where you can go is to the GitHub repository. Uh, and the GitHub repository, you can find the news file. And usually you will find a lot more things in there. And you can also look at the individual commits because the news file doesn't always have everything. If you look at some interest, some commit messages, sometimes you find something like added this new method. Uh, maybe they forgot to add it to the news file and things like that. Cool. You mentioned something that made me also want to uh, punt a question to Chris too. Uh, you mentioned that like the things that you're also learning too, like when you're writing something, you're also learning things you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, how do you come up with like go rails episodes? It, a lot of it's similar. Um, those are the most fun kind of, you know, if you haven't done something before, it's fun to, to research it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, also, because I'm working on Hatchbox on the side, um, there's a lot of complicated things I end up doing in that. And so that makes for really good ways to extract screencasts and ideas. So um, as long as I'm building other projects, like I used to consult or work at a company and now I've got my own other products. So as long as I'm building something complicated, um it usually just gives me kind of an infinite list of features to go and say, Hey, that, that deserves a tutorial. I can go pull that out and cover that um, because other people will find that interesting or whatever. So it kind of is the most common thread that I have these days is just um, stuff that I'm working on that would obviously make for a a good little uh, tutorial. Yeah, that makes sense. So like Hatchbox, kind of inspires you it's like it's like the project you're working on outside of go rails it can like still ignite ideas yeah otherwise if you leave it and you're not doing that stuff you just never feel like you have any good ideas because nothing ever kind of springs to mind is like oh no one talks about this i should go explain it you know right hey so similar question uh how do you find con like how do you find ideas for content to write Mm mm-hmm well, I have different strategies. First, um, uh, I look at what people ask for. Some different Ruby communities on Facebook groups. And I keep checking from time to time to see what things keep popping up. And then I take notes about that. I have like a document where I copy and paste uh things people ask for, so I can refer that after for ideas. Then also I'm so on Slack channels and things like that. So everywhere that I am aware that there are um, gatherings of people that like Ruby and talk about Ruby, I try to keep tabs on that to see what people I have been struggling with or need help with. So that's one thing. 
Another thing is that I get emails from people um, and they ask me for things. How you do, do how you do this? How do you do that? So for example, yesterday I got an email an email. Uh, someone asked me for how to use Ajax in Rails. So like I said, I don't do a lot of Rails, but that's one thing that I could do as a piece of content, right? And I have also a YouTube channel where uh, people also post comments, and sometimes these comments are just thank you for the content and all of that. I'm thankful for people that watch and leave kind comments. But also on, on the channel, they leave content ideas or things that they want to learn more about. Interesting. So I was uh, like scrolling through your blog and you have, you have a ton of articles. Uh, how many do you try and put out a week? Uh, it's two a week. So I try to post on, I got kind of on a schedule now. I was kind of random before, like one year ago. I know I try to get into this more consistent schedule because I think consistency is very important for anything you do, not just posting content, but anything that you want to be successful at, you need to be very consistent, right? So uh, right now I'm this schedule where I post uh, on Fridays and Mondays. I post a new article these days. So that would be two, two a week. Chris, how much content are you putting out? Um, I usually post one video a week. Um, so do you alternate between like pro and free? Yeah. Yeah. I try and alternate. Um, and it just depends. Uh, sometimes I do a series that's, you know, several of one type uh, in a row and then do a few uh, free ones or something. So, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes, and, and Ryan Bates has talked about this too in the past, like, uh, that he would spend like on average like 40 hours to make one screencast, which what, I remember reading that being like, nah, that's insane. And uh, yeah, it's definitely easy to spend 40 hours uh, when you are, if you're, especially if you're doing something new. That's why a lot of my content will come from other things that I'm building because I, it's all deeply understood in my head so I can record that content faster. But uh, if you're doing something you're not familiar with, it can easily take you that long just to go iron out all the different edge cases and stuff that you need to address and make sure you're explaining it well. And just, there's a lot that goes into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I lost my train of thought. I, I'll have to come back. What were you going to say? Jesus? <laughs> No, the, the, it's indeed a, a lot of work to do the research and put content together. And imagine video, it even takes you more. I also do some video, but it's not my focus. But video, I feel like it takes even more work because you have to do the all of the video editing and all of that. Yeah, yeah. so that, that was what I was going to bring up to you, like... You also, Chris, like you do your videos like straight through, right? You don't usually like chop them up and put them together. 
Um, they're usually pretty edited. Um, I don't, I don't edit them after the fact. Uh, the way I do it is I record as I'm going along. And then, um, if I end up with too many edits or whatever, I'm clearly kind of struggling. So I'll either like stop and record it the next day or something. Um, and that way it's just more, cause my goal with mine are to feel like we're pair programming. So, um, my videos end up being either I record it kind of edit or record chunks at a time. Um, and so then I'll make sure that those are right. Cause the worst, the worst thing you can possibly have is spend, you know, 30 minutes or 20 minutes going through something and find out you made several typos five mm-hmm. minutes ago. And then you're like, uh, and we can go back and fix this typo. The whole just falls apart. Yeah. And so, so those are like the things I'm trying to avoid. So recording it in chunks as I go along helps with that. Um, but then also you can do the sort of, you know, voiceover approach if you wanted. Um, but I wanted mine to kind of feel more live, but I, I know that it works well for like all the Ruby tapas videos um, are voiced over and they work, they seem to work out really, really well. So, um, you know, there's you like, different ways you can go about it. Maybe I haven't like, I also, I like admit when I like go to a specific go rails videos to find like one thing I remember seeing or like trying to like extract something I know you're talking about, but I could have mm-hmm. sworn like when I watched them, like they were straight through. So that's impressive. And also it explains to me like when I tried to record some videos and like we get to the end, I was so frustrated every time. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It, it's funny. Cause I'll, uh, I will record something in the morning sometimes and then just be like annoyed the rest of the day. Cause it'll be just frustrating to record or what happens every time is I'll record in the morning and then I'll be like brain dead by, you know, 10 AM or something. And like, basically can't work for the rest of the day because i'm like i'm so exhausted <laughs> it's it's draining i only did like six or seven videos but like i i also tried to do them like all on a weekend and like mm, by Saturday yeah. night, i felt like a zombie i like i haven't tried since i should maybe try again yeah if you do that much i mean i go in spurts well while i'm like inspired to cover something and i'll do that but you know, if you do that much all in a short time, it gets real exhausting real fast. I learned a lot more about ES6, though, because that's what my videos were on. So, I Yeah, learned. I'm excited for all the new transitions in Rails over to ES6 now that, um, now that Webpacker is going to be the default. Yeah, very, very much excited. Uh there's a lot of like, so a Rails OO beta two, I think came out yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. What, which was like what three weeks late or something? Yeah, uh, I actually had a picture of the schedule and I lost it. It's yeah, it was like supposed to be the beginning. It's like February fifth. Um, yeah, like it's like early. DHH still on Twitter seemed like optimistic. They can get real six on the timeline. So cool. Do you know but why I, uh, it was behind? I don't know. I really like anything I would say would be speculation, but I know it's so like this one came with the new site work. Uh, code yeah, loader. the new auto loader. Yeah, which uh, is really interesting because the the old auto loader was causing 
issues with some of my background jobs. And I know that um, that was like one of the issues that isn't noted in the sidekick docs is like, make sure that you have all of your stuff working safely with the autoloader. Otherwise, like you can get deadlocks and sidekick jobs. Yes. And they still, so I, I read through the site work blog post because like, I'm really fascinated by it. I, the only time I've had like auto loading trouble has been like working with rails engines. Uh, like you and I worked on a couple yeah. of rails together. Yeah. And, like, I just like want to bang my head in the wall. But like, uh, so with Zitework, or I guess now with just using Rails 6, uh, they've removed all the instances or the need for required dependency. Yeah, that seems like a, like a huge improvement. And then, uh, but I was thinking too, like, what about projects that do that? And so like, you can still, at least in like beta 2, and I imagine the like first release, you can still like, use the old loader it's just a settings change Mm, okay so is it like if you ran code that did the required dependency um is that just going to give you like a deprecation warning now or i have no idea i'd imagine it would i'm I'm interested ever since i announced this i've been interested because it seems like uh something that like wasn't a big pain point for me but i know it's a pain point for a lot of other people and it seems like really nice that like this is a good, like a step in the right direction. So. Yeah, it seemed like it was quite a complicated uh, thing to write. So it no wonder it's taken so long to get this big, quite big improvement. It seems like the other thing I noticed just reading through since we're talking real six real quick. There's a uh, it was I think mostly in the last alpha or beta whatever's out right now. Yeah. Um, Beta 2. Yeah, so in beta 1, I think it was, and some stuff in beta 2, there is a lot of action cable stuff going on. Really? Um, I haven't noticed any of that, um, but I haven't been keeping a close eye on it. What's changing in action cable? So I don't know enough about action cable to be able to explain it, but I do know, though. So do you remember Vladimir, who spoke at Southeast Ruby? Mm -hmm. I know that they um, integrated his test stuff, right? Yeah, so they bake that in. And then I don't have it pulled up, but <clears throat> it's really fascinating to read. Once again, like I've never used action cable in production. So hmm. like I use it for, for me, streaming like, I, on uh, hatchbox, streaming your logs and other things. For, so for me, like reading through, I was like, Oh, this seems like really nice, but I don't have like, yeah. So I just, there's a bunch literally of sound like an idiot. There's a bunch of like smaller uh, tweaks that'll be useful in there. It looked like that were just kind of helpful methods that maybe weren't exposed publicly or whatever, but were kind of commonly needed or used, which seems like a good improvement. Um, I'll have to read through the the change log on that and see. I was also going through a bit of um, action text recently. Last week, I was implementing... Um, you know, one thing that's kind of funny is like at mentions aren't uh, a feature in tricks uh, as an editor. Um, and it seems like a good feature to have in action text, which is based on tricks. Two recordings ago. Yeah. So uh, um, I was reading through some implementations and the, the, you know, examples that people had written in the issues on GitHub or using uh, Zerb's 
Zerb Foundation's uh, tribute uh, library, which uh, is pretty good. Um, it's just an ES6 native, uh, basically just, you know, loads the drop down and does a little autocomplete. Um, can you grab that package without like the rest of Zerb Foundation? Yep. Yeah. It's just like, well, it's funny because if you, if you yarn add tribute, it starts to install some like serial port node libraries and it turns out it's like named tribute JS or something. But I, I like blindly was like yarn add tribute and it was like <laughs> failing to compile the C extension thing. And I was like, why is, why would it need a C extension? And then it <laughs> turns out this just named weird. So um, it was cool though. Like I got that working and was, and, and this is another great thing is I don't, I know we maybe have, we've definitely tweeted about it and talked in Slack about this, but Basecamp recently made the change too for, themselves and for rails six to have source maps on by default so in your browser you can read the actual javascript that was written not the compiled version right so so one of my things was to figure out well you know there's these examples using tribute to do at mentions in text um in in the tricks example uh or github issues but how does Basecamp do it so i went through and poked around their javascript and saw you know, how they do at mentions and theirs is more complicated because theirs works across tricks and their chat and uh, something else to maybe their, um, their search. So, you know, their implementation is more complicated, but it's cool to see that and be able to go read, you know, how they're doing things and kind of um, see how you might apply those ideas to your code too. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, before we wrap up, I, I have two more questions. Um, the first is, uh, I know we kind of shifted it off topic here. Um, so I'm going to try and shift this back a little bit. Uh, you both mentioned consulting as a thing that you did or do. Jesus, do you still do any consulting? No, not anymore. Okay. So it kind of was like the uh, the middle step between getting you from point A to point B. Yes. Uh, then I will save those questions for another time. Uh, my last question is you have an article on which Ruby ID you should use. And I'm curious, I haven't, uh, I haven't read through it, but which one do you use? I use Atom. So the reason I ask, uh, Chris, I know you're a Vim user. Do you use like Mac Vim or just... Um, I use, I use Mac Vim most of the time. And then I use Vim in the terminal on, uh, one over SSH and stuff. And that's, that's one of the big reasons why I picked Vim was, makes sense. you know, it's commonly installed on Linux servers. So if I can use the same editor here and there, it's really, really easy. Um, so, yeah. So the reason I'm, I'm asking these questions, I spent a lot of time this weekend, like tweaking VS code for Ruby. Because they do like a pretty like so there's a Ruby plugin that like somebody else runs. Also, my kids are coming in and they're very loud. Uh, and so you got, got to do like so I there was like a I use Rubocop for linting, but this weekend uh, I messed with standard RB. Have either one of you heard of standard? Mm-mm. 
So it's uh, it's it's a project from Test Double, uh, which is okay. uh, a company, and uh, they are a consultancy, um, and it is like a pre- highly pre-configured RuboCop that does auto correcting based off that file, and it's awesome. Uh, I know that like there was like a really there was a lot there was a lot of debate around like certain styles like online and stuff, but like I, I won't I'm not using it at work because I don't want to piss off my coworkers, but like I just run like format document and like I don't have to think about any styling in Ruby. It's so awesome. Hmm, that's interesting. I'll have to check it out. What other um, Ruby and Rails um, plugins do you use in VS Code? Uh, I use one that formats ERB for me. Uh, mm-hmm. So I can just write nasty ERB and hit save and it looks all good. Uh, I use prettier JS for my JavaScript. These are all formatting things I know. So shame on me. But uh, other than that, I have one that if you're using RSpec, I have like, it's a plugin. I have command setups where I can be like command L and it'll run that test line. Um, or I could be like command shift T and it'll run the entire test file. But the cool thing is like, if I'm actually in the model and I run that command, it knows to go find the matching spec. Mm, Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and then the other one I use is, uh, I have one that this is so silly. It auto completes blocks for me. So like if I type do, it types end because I just got tired of typing in so much. Yeah. Uh, those are handy. Those are those are handy until um, then you like what was it? Sometimes when you do those, like uh, you like have to then go and you know move your cursor around when you want to go past the ending there. And, and I usually found that annoying in HTML, whereas like yeah. I just want to be able to continue typing and close so this the tag. one. This one drops an end and then puts you two spaces in into the method definition. Nice. That's or handy. What, or whatever you're doing. So like, it also works for like, defining methods. And the other one I use is... Oh, I have two more. Man, I am loaded here. Rails partial, so I can select uh, some ERB and then run a command and tell it where I want it to go and it'll make it a partial. Oh, that's cool. And automatically like drop out a render block. And then the last one that I use... Uh, is I can run, it's called Rails FastNav, I think is this what this one gives me. I do like option R on a Mac. And if I'm in a model, it'll tell me all the related like files to it. Um, so like, it's an easy way to like hop to the spec file. I think it'll maybe even like give you controllers that could be related, but I could just be making that up. Hmm. That's pretty neat. Um, you'll have to post some links to those. I might, I might try it out just to see how far it's come these days. I'm still probably going to use Vim, but uh, it's definitely, it's definitely nice to, you know, have that graphical editor sometimes, you know, especially if you're working with other people who might be using VS code or whatever. Cause they, did they have the, I know Adam has that teletype support where you can remotely edit together. Um, Does VS code have a similar thing? It might. If it does, I don't know. I like... If not, you just use Tuple. <laughs> yeah. Mostly, I just like... 
share my screen and I'm like, look at all the mistakes I'm making. Fair enough. <laughs> Have you tried the SolarGraph plugin? Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, do you use that with Adam? Um, no, but I have tried it with VS Code when I was testing VS Code. Yeah, so SolarGraph is a language server. Uh, like you install it as a gem, for those who don't know, and it's like gem install SolarGraph. I probably pronounced it wrong. Um, but with VS Code, it will give you IntelliSense code completion and like inline documentation. I I literally just read that from the plugin description. Uh, but it's cool because like I can open up an array of like numbers and then hit dot and it, it'll tell me all the methods available that like it can gather or like if I type out a method. Okay. So like essentially it'll do everything that like, it'll do a lot of things that you get with like uh statically type languages as far as like text editor so like I can hover over a class name and it'll try and find it. And like if that class has documentation or even just a comment at the top, it will like without me having to go to the definition, it'll tell me what that class does. It's really mm-hmm. cool. I actually report a book to SolarGraph and it got fixed. <laughs> oh cool. What was the bug? Uh I don't remember. Oh yes, it had something to do with class names. So if there is a class name, which is two words, like object space, right? It's two words, object and space. Then it thought, the plugin thought that, was thinking that uh, the real class name was space, not object space. And that happened because there was some regular expression that was not chopping the class name correctly. Well, thanks for fixing that because there's, there's been a couple of times too, like I've gone, so like if I use like a Rails generator uh, or like I make a new file and the class name doesn't match the file name, it immediately is like, we have blown up and you have to restart, like fix this and restart. Uh, so like, it's a little like, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but I really enjoy using it. Like I think... I think with how good it is, like already, and maybe it's been around a lot longer. Than I think it has. Uh, I'm really excited to see like long term how to use it because it like I've talked about on here before how I wish I had more like help from my editor. Mm-hmm. Do you ever use the built-in debugger in VS Code? So I actually tried to use it this weekend, and like. I didn't love it. Uh, so I did like, there were a couple of cool things you could do. Like, you know, like when you get to, like you set a breakpoint when you get there, like it, it shows you like defined variables and things like that, which I really liked that. Um, I'm just so used to uh, binding.pry that I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to break up with it yet. Okay, so that's what you use normally for. What's your debugging process like? So you find your code isn't working and you don't know, you have no idea why. Uh, where do you get started normally? Uh, so for me, I will look at the like the logs and try and figure out like where it blew up. 
Uh, and then I will drop a price statement in there and rerun the code and then just kind of poke around. Uh, and that's like how I get started. And it is actually how I kind of like, I'll take that through the whole process. So if I realize like it's actually another method that broke it, then I will pull the price statement out, take it over there. It's a little similar to Aaron Patterson has an article called like, I'm a puts debugger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a little similar to that, except I'm actually like prying in while I'm there. Yeah, I what you're a you're a pride debugger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what uh, does do either of you have like a different debugging process? I'd be curious to hear. I, I pretty much do exactly that. I will just drop. Usually, I use just uh, buy bug since it's built in. Um, but yeah, I'll just go drop that in wherever and poke around and just rerun. Um, you know, I'll check the variables, make sure they're, they are what I expect. And then just kind of rerun each line of code. I'll put it before the bug happens and then rerun each line of code and see if I can figure out, um, what was causing the issue and, you know, not being passed in correctly or something like that. But, you know, 99% of the time, that's all I end up doing. And it gets me to the right spot, just checking the stack trace and, figuring out uh, where I should start with that and, and just verify that everything's correct. Um, usually, as soon as I find the variable that isn't what I expected to be, then I'm like, oh, that's not right. And then I know where to go look. Isn't there some kind of like built-in thing into Ruby now that does something like this? Um, I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up. I'm pretty sure. This... Uh jumped uh, for typos. So when you make a typo on a method name, it will try to correct you. And it will say, did you mean da-da-da? In fact, uh, it's a gem that's called did you mean? Um, and it's included by default since Ruby 2.3 or 2.4. And that's the, close, the closer thing to what you're saying that I'm aware of. So it looks like there's a thing <clears throat> you can uh, do binding dot irb. Mm-hmm. So, but I guess that's only that's what I'm thinking oh. of. I guess that's only in a, oh. a that's similar to binding yes. pry then. Yeah, which but- takes the the current because because I forget what all the there's you can access like the method that called you and all those other things with a few variables that are available. Um, in every method or whatever, and bindings one of them, and that's how, um, like, you know, the web console um, and the the better errors gem. When in Rails, you like hit an error and they give you a command prompt. That's how those work. Um, they actually like remember the binding and keep track of that, so you can click on any one of those uh, lines of code in your stack trace and then go inspect the variables in any of those which is like one of the best features. Um, It's so handy to have that because I will usually click on, you know, the different stuff and then see the source code inside of rails or whatever gem it crashed in and then poke around and see what they're trying to do internally uh, with that prompt there. Uh, What about you, Jesus? Any different debugging style or kind of the same as both of us? It's about the same, but sometimes I use P, the P method, 
which is like uh, puts inspect uh, that allows you to see the values. Um, what you can do is see multiple values with P. So P takes a hash. A lot of people don't know this, but you can print more than one value with P. And sometimes I do P, and let's say that I have three values, A, B, C, used for simplicity. So I do P, then space A, um, colon A, comma, B, colon B, comma, C, colon C. And what this does is it prints a nice little hash with these three values. So I can see the three values at the same time. So that's what I do sometimes instead of finding the price. It depends a bit on the context that I'm working on. Nice. Well, uh, I think this is a good place for us to wrap up. Um, Jesus, where can people find you online? Yeah, people can find me on my website, and that's rubyguides.com. Rubyguides.com is all together, uh, so there is no dashes or anything like that. It's just rubyguides.com. And that's my main site where you find all of my tutorials. They are free. You get access to my newsletter. There's a big button that says, yes, um, I want to learn more Ruby. And that gets you a little form that you can sign up to my newsletter. And you can also find me on on Twitter. The name that there is MatuGM. So that's M um, A T U G M. Uh, it's the same for GitHub. And then I'm also on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel with uh, Ruby tutorials. Uh, my channel name, I think it's just my name. So it's all together. So Jesus Castillo. Great. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing about what you got going on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, Chris. Yeah, glad to have you. Chris, you got anything? Oh, nothing, uh, nothing that I can think of. All right. Uh, well, let's wrap it up. Do it again next time. All right. See yeah. ya.